This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. This is the final episode of Series 2 and our guest Elizabeth Elliot is helping us explore Camelot in The Once and Future King by T.H. White. Published in 1958, The Once and Future King adapts the famous stories of King Arthur and his round table. Beginning with the childhood of Arthur in the first book, The Sword in the Stone, White's version of the familiar stories are complex examinations of leadership, nobility, romance and war. Of White's novel, Burgess writes, This is not a remote and fabulous history. The lesson of the breaking of the round table is for our time. T.H. White was born in Bombay, India in 1906. Although The Once and Future King is his most famous novel, he was a prolific writer with 20 other books to his name. In 1951 he published The Goshawk, which details his attempts to train his hawk using the falconry methods of the Middle Ages. He died in 1964 in Greece during the return journey from a lecture tour of the United States. Elizabeth Elliot is Senior Lecturer in English Literature at the University of Aberdeen. She specialises in medieval and early modern literature and the afterlives of medieval texts in later literature. Her latest article, Restoring Arthurian Legend, Space, Place and Time in Once and Future in Legendborn, was published in the Journal of the International Arthurian Society in 2022. Her book, Remembering Boethius, Writing Aristocratic Identity in Later Medieval French and English Literatures, is published by Routledge. You can find Elizabeth on Twitter at Liz I. Elliot. For a full list of all the books mentioned in our conversation, and all the relevant links, head to the description of this episode. Although this is the last episode of 99 Novels in Series 2, we'll be back in 2023. In the meantime, why not check out episodes you've missed? While 99 Novels is taking a break, there'll also be more podcasts about different elements of the life and work of Anthony Burgess, so stay subscribed. I'm Graham Foster, and I spoke to Elizabeth Elliot about The Once and Future King by T.H. White in October 2022. I'm, I'm here talking to Elizabeth Elliot about uh, The Once and Future King by T.H. White. We like to start off the, the podcasts by asking you when you first discovered The Once and Future King and, and what did you make of it? I actually didn't read the novel as a child. Um, somehow, despite being obsessed with various forms of the Arthurian legend, I, I was aware of the Disney film, um, but I didn't actually read the novel until um, 
until after I'd finished my PhD and I was reading a number of Arthurian adaptations as part of course preparation and that's when I first read the novel as a complete sequence. And then what really struck me is the comparison with some of the other novels that I was reading at the time, like Mark Twain's uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Um, this was the thing that really struck me was White's empathy with the medieval past. So where Twain's Yankee is very pleased with himself and his relationship to um, civilization, the people of the Middle Ages are represented as being childlike and underdeveloped. Um, White seems much more critical of these ideas. Um, in the Book of Merlin, he's explicitly looking at um, the notion of progress as an illusion. Um, so the thing that struck me, um, especially when I returned to the novel for this podcast, is how many of White's ideas are in tune with contemporary currents of thought. So things like the idea that humans are not are an animal among other species and are not superior, um, and that children are more intelligent and adaptable. This is this question is more sort of speculation. Why, why do you think Burgess included this novel in his list of ninety nine of the of the best sort of twentieth century novels? And what was the novel's reputation in 1984 when he was compiling his list? The novel has always attracted, um, from the point of its first publication, it's attracted a lot of critical recognition. Um, and it's had persistent attention through its adaptations in the musical Camelot in 1960 that was later filmed, and in the posthumous publication of the Book of Merlin in 1977, as well as the Disney film. So it's been um, the subject of fresh attention at various intervals, um, and it's always been recognised as a substantial work. Um, so for example, the um, publication of the Book of Merlin, there's an afterword by Sylvia Townsend Warner, something that's always been recognised as um, a, as an important novel. Um, and it's also a book that engages with the central place of the Arthurian legend um, in the British cultural imagination. So it's a story, it recognises the way Arthurian legend directly contributes to shaping Britain um, because Arthurian legend was used as a way of justifying um, imperial projects from its very first appearance in the Middle Ages. Um, it used, it's used in the same way in the early modern period. Um, and part of what White is doing is examining that work that the Arthurian legend has done um, in shaping the political imagination um, and turning it turning a critical eye on that um, that cultural work that the Arthurian legend does and I think that contributes to um, the way the novel effectively claims a place in the canon itself and I think the choice of this novel for inclusion in the list of 99 um, is a reflection of that that cultural weight and work that the novel is doing. And, and you mentioned the the Disney film there, The Sword in the Stone, which is uh, an adaptation of the first book of The Once and Future King. Um, that's uh, how most people would be familiar with with White's work, I think. And The Sword in the Stone is is uh, quite a well trodden story. It's it's the sort of uh, upbringing of Arthur uh, by Merlin, his, his sort of lessons. Uh, and it's full of magic and fantasy and Arthur gets turned into animals to learn about the, the world. How does the novel develop past the sword in the stone? What what can readers expect to find beyond the more familiar stories? The later stories within the sequence of books is um, are much more mature in their concerns. They reflect the nature of this story as um, as a tragedy. Arthur becomes much less central 
and with the second book which um, has at different times been taught called The Queen of Errant Darkness um, and The Witch in the Wood deals with the abusive childhood of the Orkney clan and the seeds that that sows for the later development of the legend um, leading up to the, the death of Arthur. Um, so it's dealing with the childhood of Sir Gawain, the childhood of Mordred and, and Agravain. Um, the figure of Margot within this novel is modelled on White's own relationship with his mother. Um, the novel was rewritten to make that theme um, a little less prominent. So it's dealing with some very um, painful and, uh, and troubling themes. The later novels are also grappling with questions of um, how to do what's right. So you have um, in The Ill-Made Knight, you have Lancelot's attempt to balance his love for Guinevere with his friendship with Arthur. Um, you also have questions of faith and the idea of the nature of goodness um, explored via the quest for the grail which draws um, directly and indirectly on sources like the, um, the French quest de, del Saint-Gréal um, and all of this leading up to the eventual breakdown of the round table. And the final book, The Book of Merlin, returns to that theme of education via animals um, and that book was published posthumously in part because the nature of its discussion of war um, was considered to be inopportune in, in the 1940s um, when war was um, was a very current concern. So the themes that it's addressing are um, are political, it's much less um, playful than that initial story. And The Sword and the Stone is um, the one book within the sequence that doesn't really have a precedent in Mallory. Mallory and other sources don't really deal with the childhood of King Arthur um, in, in this level of detail. Um, so this is where White was really um, innovative and um, creative in his own right. This is his own input to the, um, the, the, the development of the legend. Yeah, and, and The Sword in the Stone, uh, for people that are familiar with it through the film and, and the book, it's very much for children. It's, uh, you know, it, it's fun, it's light, lots of magic in it. But as we read further, and probably why Disney didn't adapt the rest of the books, there's lots of, of violence, sex, complex philosophical conversations about war and the meaning of being a king and at one point uh in i think the second book one of the characters boils a, a live cat in a cauldron of water with all this in mind and and with what you've just talked about about the development of the story uh through the different books of the once and future king who who do you think white intended the the audience to be of this novel so there's an early letter that White write to, writes to his friend L.J. Potts in 1938. Um, and in that letter, he says, it seems impossible to determine whether it is for grown-ups or for children. And at that point, he's talking about the sword and the stone. And I think this is really a quality that's retained throughout the sequence. Um, I think it is really difficult to tell whether this is a book that's intended for grown-ups or children because it's at once addressing um, these very mature, very adult themes. Um, and it's also addressing them in a way that makes them accessible to children. Um, I think it's an interesting aspect of the novel because I think it would make it very difficult to publish a novel like this in the present where um, publishers tend to be very concerned with issues of um, marketing um, and ensuring that novels clearly fit into particular categories when they're when they're published so it's clear who they're being marketed to. Um, I think White is, is writing at a time where people were much less concerned with that um, and it makes the novel 
I think it's one of the things that gives the novel its its resonance um, and the kind of cultural traction that it's had. The fact that it is a novel that you can return to and read at different stages during an individual's lifetime, and it it offers um, different rewards at those those different points. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting the way. I mean, my copy of the book, um, which I think is the most recent Harper paperback, the way it's marketed is as a, a children's book almost. It, there's quotes on the back. J.K. Rowling says it's Harry Potter's spiritual ancestor. And I'm not entirely sure how that really fits together because this book is is much, much more complex than than any of the Harry Potter books. So how do you think those connections between T.H. White's work and the the sort of children's literature of uh jk rowling are, are they uh, is do you think she's talking just about the sword and the stone or is she are, are there influences of of the once and future king in something like harry potter i think that there is an influence in how the once and future king shaped ideas about magical education so i think you're right in suggesting that it's the sword and the stone in particular that has has had that kind of cultural influence on children's literature but the idea of the chosen one narrative and the particular form that the chosen one narrative takes within the once and future king where you have um, the development from childhood into a much more um, complex moral universe i think is something that's had an influence on on books like harry potter as i think the Harry Potter sequence is, is less successful in representing um, the full moral complexity of um, of the political world in the way that The Once and Future King does, um, since The Once and Future King is very much grappling with current issues such as the influence of fascism. And I think a novel like Harry Potter, like the Harry Potter series, is attempting to, um, to address questions such as the influence of of the far right but it's doing it very much more retrospectively it's looking back to the past it's still using um the idea of nazism as as a kind of intertext um, but it does so much less directly um, and i think for that reason it's that it is as you say it's, it's a less complex approach to to those ideas it doesn't have um quite the weight that the once and future king does yeah, I I think that's right, and and perhaps some of that weight comes from the fact that the Once and Future King is is a work of adaptation. So White is using using existing stories to to create his own. And Burgess says uh, White's aim was to unscramble the fabulous and bring the story closer to our own time. With this in mind, what what were White's original sources, and and how does he manipulate them to make them relevant to modern audiences? So White's major um, and primary source is, is Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, which White describes as an attempt to find an antidote to war um, and that desire to respond to, um, to the overwhelming threat that war represented and particularly the threat of fascism um, is very key to what White is setting out to do in The Once and Future King. So for example, he directly makes Mordred into a version of, of the Fuhrer. Um, that comparison is, is very, between Mordred and Hitler is drawn very directly. But fascism is also a spectre that hovers over the early ambitions that Arthur has within the sequence. 
So within the second book, um, Arthur talks about imposing civilization by force. And Merlin replies to him and says, an Austrian plunged the civilized world into, into misery and chaos um, from his own perspective, where this is something that, that has happened to Merlin um, quite some time ago at this point, since Merlin is living backwards. So there are these kinds of question marks that are being drawn over um, the idea of what is good and the nature of what is good. Um, and I think White is much less certain about this than some modern versions of um, of the Chosen One narrative. Um, he is much less certain about the nature of what is good. He's um, he is asking questions, which again I think is something that gives the novel and gives the sequence um, resonance. Um, so White is looking to to get to the root of the problem and to consider how it might be possible to to put an end to war. Um, and he is drawing on these sources like Mallory and like. Um, Mallory's antecedents in, in Chrétien de Troyes, these versions of the Arthurian legend that are representing the idea of chivalry and considering the idea of what an ideal society might look like. And the debate around what an ideal society might look like is, is very much at the heart of the sources. So you get long texts like the Prose Lancelot, um, other texts like like Chrétien de Troyes, and then you get the response to those texts in um, the Quest del Sangreal, which looks at um, chivalric literature and suggests that actually um, none of this is very uh, devout or godly from a Christian perspective, and is looking to set that chivalric legend on um, on a different track. And I think part of the the kind of investment that White has in civilization is is, is also a really interesting one. So at one point, somebody asks why, why he's chosen to rewrite the legend of Arthur, and he says um, that his grandfather was a judge, a very upright, just, good old man who believed in right and wrong, and he had these standards of value which King Arthur and Victoria and, um, and good people have. And I think that's a really good illustration both of um, the kinds of ambitions White had for the sequence and also some of its limitations. So. Although in many ways, some of those questions about um, the idea of progress and how we might be skeptical about the idea of progress and the critiques that he's offering of nationalism in the sequence, um, well, those anticipate some some more recent perspectives on these questions. A lot of his thinking also reflects White's imperialist background. Um, so he was the child of a district superintendent of police in colonial India, where he lived for his first five years of life. So he's pushing back against the idea of force. But I think he's still got an investment in um, the idea of civilization and a particular conception of civilization that's um, that's tied to the imperialist project and that we might um, question. I'm interested uh, in something that you sort of mentioned in, in that answer about the the way the Arthurian legend has been written and responded to over history. And is the Arthurian legend something that, that is in a constant state of being rewritten? And, it, and is, therefore, the once and future king just the sort of an, another in a line of, of sort of manipulating the story in order to give it relevance to a certain time? Yes, I think it absolutely is. So there's a, a recent author of... Um an Arthurian ad adaptation called Tracy Dion, um, who says that she increasingly thinks about these legends as um, branching pathways and international games of, um, of telephone. Um, and there she's talking about the child's game where one person says something and it's whispered to somebody else. Um, and as it goes down a chain, it gradually transforms into something else entirely. And the source of um, enjoyment that you get within that game is 
is that process of transformation and what it adds to um, to the original. Um, I think that's very much how the Arthurian legend works, that it's rewritten by different people in different times to serve different, um, different agendas. Part of T.H. Uh, White's adaptation is he puts loads of anachronism in his novel. Events, like you mentioned, the, the Austrian who plunges... Europe into misery is mentioned by Merlin and and par- partly because Merlin is living his life backwards his very long life he lives backwards so he's experienced the 20th century many many years ago centuries ago and the anachronism is so brazen even in in the the sort of way really early on in the sword in the stone they they say that the noblemen are together in a room drinking port and then white says of course they wouldn't have been drinking port they would have probably been drinking mead or something like that but i'm using port the anachronism and and the sort of updating of the story is done in a very knowing way and and how does that affect the way we we process the story um, if if we continue the, uh, the the quotation from the episode that you just mentioned um white explains by mentioning the modern wine it's easier to give you the feel and i think that conscious use of anachronism um, is very much there in order to to make the past that he is um, the imaginative past that he's describing feel immediate and um, and present. So it's also in the texture of the language. So knights speak like. Um, upper class um, men of the 30s and 40s and you've got direct references to people being educated at Eton. At the time when it was published that would have given you this kind of immediate sense that this is a novel about about the present um, and that engages with, with present day issues. Um, this is a reflection on one of the qualities of the Arthurian legend. Um, there's a critic called Andrew Lynch who says um, that the Arthurian legend is always about power in the real world um, and I think anachronism makes that clear. Um, It's also a reflection of some of the qualities that medieval versions of the legend have always had. Um, So it's a very characteristic feature of medieval approaches to to texts and also to visual representations. So if you look at pictures of um, of Jesus and Mary, for example, Jesus and Mary are always depicted wearing contemporary clothes. and within medieval romances, even though you have representations of time periods like the Trojan War um, or like the time of King Arthur, people always seem to be wearing um, contemporary armour. So there's there's a desire to represent the past um, as if it was the present um, in order to give you that sense of um, sense of immediacy. Yeah, and uh, am I right in thinking Mallory uses anachronism in his version of the Arthurian legend? And if so, it is, is white sort of harking back to to Mallory, uh, is he inspired to use anachronism by what Mallory did originally? Yes, I think so. I think it's in part a reflection of this idea that the representations of the past are taking place in the present, are driven by by present day concerns. Um, So it's making visible something that's reflected in that kind of anachronism that that Mallory has. Um, So when Mallory represents jousting and... um, (laughs) And knighthood as it was being practiced in in Mallory's own time. Um, so yes, I think White is very deliberately and playfully um, using anachronism in order to to make those priorities and those those particular concerns visible. And and in 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 terms of of this being a, a classic classical legend, uh, the the characters in the Once and Future King are all very familiar. 
they are part of of the tapestry of British culture. Um, we we know them. Someone mentions Lancelot, and we we know who Lancelot is. It's sort of we get it through osmosis, being being British. And how how are these characters depicted in the earliest versions of these stories? And how is White uh, subverted what we expect from these characters? There's very little. Um, consistency in the depiction of these characters um, in early versions of the legend um, and not all of the characters appear in very early versions of the legend so the earliest appearance of a character is um, is, is Merlin um, who appears in texts like Geoffrey of Monmouth but we get a much less um, fully developed sense of who Arthur is. The version of Arthur that we're familiar with is very much a product of 12th century texts um, such as the text of Chrétien de Troyes and the kind of later development that we get within Mallory um, but within the later texts um, even there what you have is a, a very kind of fluid and mobile conception of character so Gawain for example is usually depicted um, in terms which which are not too far off what you get in white he is much more worldly um, he tends to be interested in um, in romance, um, but in other texts like the fourteenth century Seguin and the Green Knight, he suddenly appears as the model of um, of chivalry and purity. And in that poem, um, King Arthur appears as as young and um, playful, um, a little bit childish in his attitude to to, to games. Um, so we don't get these we don't really get a consistent version of character. I think in one of the things that's influencing White in particular is a resurgence of interest in the Arthurian legend um, in the 19th century. Um, so after the early modern periods in the 17th and 18th centuries, people aren't all that interested in the Arthurian legend. It, it never falls out of favour entirely, but it's not um, it, it's not prioritised in the way that it was in, in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. Um, in the 19th century, there's a real resurgence of interest, and it's in part driven by um, the kind of role that Arthur's playing in the imperialist project. So you get organisations like Baden-Powell's Scouts imagining themselves as young knights of the empire, and much more troublingly, you get organisations like um, the Ku Klux Klan using ideas of chivalric masculinity um, as a way of focusing their own racist projects. Um, you also get colonial officials thinking about themselves as um, as knights errant, and other nineteenth century responses to Mallory, like Tennyson's Idylls of the King, which is it, like uh, White, it's a very close rewriting of of Mallory, um, and Tennyson imagines Arthur as an especially pure figure. Um, you've also got a contemporary nineteenth um, century investment in Lancelot and Guinevere as a model for people's um, for people's love lives at the time, um, which shapes the idea that comes down most as, as courtly love. Um, courtly love is a term that's coined in the 19th century, um, and the kind of reimagining of courtly love that happens in the 19th century um, has shaped critical responses to medieval literature. So lots of criticism has spent some time thinking about the kind of impact that that's had on and how that has created anachronistic expectations when we look back at medieval literature. But I think the most striking um, character change that we get within The Once and Future King is the casting of Lancelot as being strikingly ugly, um, when Lancelot is usually depicted in terms of beauty in the way that White makes Lancelot's consciousness of his own cruelty as the thing that drives him uh, to try and embody perfection. 
which I think gives the character of Lancelot perhaps much more interest than he possesses in um, some of the versions where he is much more um, pure, chivalric and, and beautiful. And it gives him a much greater psychological depth, which is interesting. Yeah, I think Lancelot's in The Once of Future King is a much more complex creation than than we are perhaps used to seeing. Um, not just because he's ugly, but but psychologically as well, he's he's quite a quite a strange character. He's not heroic in the traditional sense, even though he's the greatest knight ever to walk the earth. Essentially, it's not a depiction of a a sort of classical hero in 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 my eyes. It, it, he's much more fallible in a way, and and that that sort of presents itself in his love for for Guinevere and and his, his sort of doubts that he has later in the book about about why he is is uh sort of doing these these jousts and and that sort of thing at the end of candle in the wind which is which was the final book published in th white's lifetime there is another book called the book of merlin that was published in the 1970s the candle in the wind at the end of this the this book arthur hands his story to a a, a young thomas mallory uh, and the last words of the book are the beginning, suggesting the reader should go on to read Le Mort d'Arthur. Uh, why do you think he's chosen to end his book by by sending the reader back to the original stories? And how does The Once and Future King help us to understand the, those stories better? I think the handing of the story to Mallory draws attention to the place that these particular stories have in um, in shaping the world that we live in. And the conscious anachronism of that, um, the fact that he's ending his novel in the Wars of the Roses, and this is a novel that has um, has also um, represented the Arthurian legend as if it were taking place at the time of the Norman Conquest at, um, at times with Arthur meeting uh, Robin Hood, who's referred to as, as Robin Wood. Um, that anachronism works as a way of drawing attention to the, the story as a story. Um, it's a reminder of the process of storytelling um, and the cultural work that the process of storytelling does. Um, so it's a reminder that, that the history that we read has been has been constructed. Um, and I think it suggests the importance of thinking about the particular priorities and aims of the people who, who are constructing those histories and what their intentions were. Right. And, and we mentioned J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter but beyond that, what do you think the, the legacy of The Once and Future King is? Do you see the influence of, of White's book in anybody writing today? The Once and Future King has a really important place in popular culture because it's, um, it is at the root of most people's perception of Arthurian legend, um, even if that's um, indirectly via adaptations like Disney's Sword in the Stone. In present day writing, it's um, it's been an important point of engagement in um, Helen MacDonald's H's for Hork, um, where she thinks about White's own relationship with animals and the kind of relationship that he had with, with his Hork. But I think it's perhaps most visible in the, the flowering of Arthurian adaptations um, that we're seeing in the 21st century. Um, so in the last couple of years alone, there've been a series of particularly young adult adaptations of Arthurian legend. Um, so Swapna Krishna and Jen Northington put out a collection called Swordstone Table, 
which features um, a variety of authors, all of whom are offering um, versions of Arthurian legend that are refocused to consider perspectives on race, gender or sexuality. And there's also a duology by A.R. Capetta and Corey McCarthy, um, which is a space opera that centres on a female version of Arthur. And that duology evokes white very directly. Um, so the figure of Merlin within that sequence also lives backwards and part of he comes to embrace his his own identity as a gay man in the distant future um, and at this point he's acted as mentor to 24 incarnations of Arthur across his career um, and there are explicit references to educating Arthur by turning him into animals. You also get a reflection of his influence in texts like Lev Grossman's uh, popular fantasy series The Magicians where one aspect of the education of the magical education that the figures within um, that series go through is being turned into geese. So you've got a very explicit reference to an episode in the education of Arthur that was originally part of the Sword and the Stone um, but was was taken out um, and which was eventually published as part of the Book of Merlin. There's also been a really interesting um, critical examination of the cultural work that Arthurian legend does which I think very directly continues the legacy of White um, in Tracy Dion's uh, book Legendborn um, which is part of a series um, that's looking at the idea of property and possession in ways that chimes in with the, the kinds of questions that White gives to Merlin. Um, so Merlin, in the Book of Merlin, um, is thinking about the origins of war um, and says, assume the vague idea that war is due to having in general, and is thinking about what it would mean um, to avoid the idea of property and, and questions of possession. And I think Dion can be seen as very directly continuing that and um, and maybe taking that criticism deeper. So Dion, as a black woman writing in America, is in particular dealing with the lingering impact of um, chattel slavery. Um, so her perspective on the harm done by the desire to possess and to own um, in all the forms that that desire takes is um, is perhaps even more, it, it is even more thoroughgoing than White's criticism of that idea. Wow, that that's a, a, a full list of, the Once and Future King seems to be sort of at the at the the center of of so many different novels. Uh, this is a question that we that we ask all of our guests. If you could add a hundredth novel to Burgess's list to round it up, you can choose any. What would it be and why? I think I would like to add something by Akweke Emetsu. Um, I think they're one of the most outstanding novelists working today. Their work is just incredibly rich and complex. Um, they've written in various different genres from um, YA to romance, um, as well as literary fiction. And their craft is just exceptional across all of the genres in which, in which they've written. Um, so if you were to ask me in a few years, I think my answer to this question might be different. But for now, I think I would like to add their debut, um, Freshwater, which is an incredibly um, painful and beautiful examination of um, embodiment and gender. And so yeah, I think I, I would like to add that, <laughs> that novel to, to Burgess's list. Well, that, that's great. Uh, a really interesting choice. I, I haven't heard of that one and i would uh, i would uh, like to to check it out so uh, elizabeth thank you for for joining us on the 99 novels podcast it's been a really interesting uh, approach to to talking about th white to talking about arthurian legend and i i can't thank you enough for joining us thank you very much for asking me um, it's, it's been really interesting and i've been delighted to join you 
You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. More episodes of 99 Novels are coming in 2023. Make sure you subscribe at your favourite podcast app to avoid missing out. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor and is performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.